Well, thank you, Randy. Well, it's good to, good to have you here tonight, and uh, I'm excited to start this new series, a 12-week series on the Minor Prophets with you, and uh, the, my decision to teach an overview of, of, of these uh, Minor Prophets was not very spiritual at all, as I was thinking and praying about this, this fall and, and what uh, the Lord might have me teach. Um, I went to my calendar, and I counted up how many Wednesdays that there actually was without our concert of prayers, right, and other things that we might uh, have along the way, and guess what? There were 12 Wednesday nights when I would be actually preaching, and I thought, 12, that's a good number, a dozen, a dozen what, you know, and you start thinking about things in the Bible that came in 12s, and one of the things that came to my mind was the 12 minor prophets, and I thought uh, I'd always wanted to teach a little series, a little mini-series, just kind of an overview, a flyover uh, of, of the Minor Prophets. Um, and so uh, that's how I came up with 12, 12 Wednesdays, 12 Minor Prophets. Not very spiritual, right? But uh, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord's in all things, right? And, uh, and that this is going to be a, a great opportunity for us to, to uh, go through these books uh, that hopefully will inspire you to go deeper in your own personal study, and maybe it will inspire me to circle back at some point and do a more in-depth study of one or more of these, these uh, minor prophets like I have already done with Hosea um, and uh, the book of Jonah. Um, however, I, I'm, I'm a little scared, uh, I'll admit that, because uh, when I began to uh, pull books off my shelf uh, on the minor prophets, I was so excited that I had James Montgomery Boyce's um, commentary, two-volume commentary, on the Minor Prophets, and I'm like, yes! I love James Montgomery Boyce, and so I thought, man, that's going to be a great resource. Well, I opened it up and began to read, and in his preface, he talked about how uh, early on in his ministry, he was looking for something that he could do that wouldn't require a whole lot of time uh, to preach on Sunday nights, and so he thought, I'm going to do a series on the Minor Prophets and just kind of go through them really quickly, and and, uh, he said that uh, he started into the series, and he immediately was overwhelmed at the depth of each of these books that he couldn't just uh, kind of breeze over them. And so he promptly stopped the series <laughs> that he thought was going to be maybe 12 weeks long. And, uh, and, and 10 years later, and two, a two-volume commentary later, he, he finished The Minor Prophets. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into, right? So I'm, I'm praying that that won't be my experience. Um, that I'll just force myself to, to do something that I don't do too well, and that's just kind of do overviews. I typically go deep and sometimes overdo things, right, overcook stuff, but hopefully we can just kind of glean uh, the, the main points of, of the Minor Prophets, and that's really why we chose this title, uh, Major Points of the Minor Prophets. And, and that's really the goal, is just to, to what, what's the, what is the point of Hosea? What is the point of Malachi. What is the point of Obadiah? What is the point of uh, Micah, Nahum? Uh, what's the point? What's the, what's the bottom line? What's the so what of that book for me in my life? This is what Boyce said in the preface to his commentary. He said, few portions of scripture have been so challenging to me as the minor prophets. It is not that they are hard to interpret, though some of them are. Rather, it is because they speak so directly and powerfully to present sins. 
it is just not possible to read them carefully without having one's life challenged and without determining to go out and live differently. And so I'm trusting and, and, and hoping that that will be uh, my response uh, as, as I uh, study these in preparation for, for Wednesday nights, that, that it will not be possible uh, to, to not have your life challenged and, and ultimately changed, to, to, to be forced to live differently. And I trust that that will be uh, your response and, 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 and how God uses this series in your life, that you will have to, you know, you'll be challenged every Wednesday night and, and you will go out of here committed to live differently than the way you did coming in. Now, having said all that, I think we would all agree that the minor prophets uh, are probably the most neglected and least understood portion of God's Word. They're what one guy called the clean pages of your Bible, right? I mean, seriously, go to your Bible and just kind of thumb through uh, Hosea through Malachi, and, and there's not a whole lot of stains, there's not a whole lot of grime, and you know why? In fact, there might even be pages stuck together there that, that you've never even gone to, you've never even opened. That, that page in your, in your copy of God's Word has never, you've never turned there. And historically... The Minor Prophets have not been the most popular subject for biblical exposition. Uh, I mean, who wants to hear doom and gloom messages from ancient uh, men to ancient nations regarding ancient, ancient events that have no relevant, apparently, uh, relevance to, to people living in the 21st century? I mean, what? I mean, who in the world is Obadiah and why should I care? I mean, seriously, who in the world is Obadiah and why should I care? How in the world am I supposed to relate to a guy named Habakkuk or a woman named Gomer? I mean, how how am I supposed to relate to that? That is so foreign to me. Well, we need to realize that even though these minor prophets were written close to 3,000 years ago, the, the powerful truths in this obscure section of Scripture are as relevant and, and as applicable and as potentially life-changing today as they were when they were originally given back then. Now, I hope you believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. I would, I would, that's kind of part of the deal here at Lakeside Bible Church, right? We, we believe we're committed to the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. You say, well, what does that mean? Tell me, tell me what it means. I'll tell you if I believe it, right? Well, what that means is each and every word in the Bible was inspired by God. Verbal, that's each word, and plenary is every word, not, not just parts, but all of it, right? So when we say we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, we mean that each and every word was inspired by God, and so we know that it is what? Profitable or useful or helpful for what? For teaching, right? For reproof or correction um, and, and training in righteousness so that we would be fully equipped to be and do everything that God wants us to be and do. And, and that includes the minor prophets, right? That, that all Scripture is profitable. It's useful. It's helpful to equip us and to train us and to reprove us and to correct us. And, and, and we need to understand as we kind of dive in here tonight that, that there, the, these are not just gloom and doom, okay, messages. These are messages of hope based on God's character and, and, and the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Um, 
the minor prophets are, 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 are the written records, really, of, of 12 prophets that God handpicked to serve as his bold mouthpieces to, to both confront and to console the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember, right, that after Solomon died, his son uh, Rehoboam, right, led in a foolish way and the kingdom divided and Ten of the tribes said, we're out of here. We're going to go start our own deal. And so they went south and they were, became Israel. And then Judah and Benjamin stayed south and became Judah. And so these prophets were speaking both uh, to Israel and to Judah, along with some of the Gentile nations, namely Assyria and Edom. And, and specifically, the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of what? Of Assyria, Right. And so, uh, and, and these prophets served during the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Medo-Persian empires, which spanned about four centuries. So we're talking about uh, between 800 and 400 BC, right? You kind of go backwards as you come to uh, the, the, the birth of Christ. So from 800 BC to 400 BC, that's kind of when this all took place. Uh, and there was basically three categories of prophet. There was the pre-exilic prophets, There were the exilic prophets, and there was the post-exilic prophets. And so all the prophecies uh, related to the exile, Uh, primarily the Assyrian exile, right? Israel was taken away uh, into exile, uh, or Israel was taken away by by Assyria, and then uh, Judah was taken away uh, by Babylon, right? The Babylonians. And so there was prophets that that, that, uh, preached before the exile and said, hey, listen, if you don't repent you're going to go into exile. <laughs> There's an enemy nation going to come and take you away out of, your, out of this country, out of your land. Uh, there were those who prophesied during the exile. There was only two of those. You know who those were? Daniel and Ezekiel, right? Those were the two guys that prophesied during the exile. And then there's post-exilic prophets that, that um, preached after or, or prophesied after the, the, the people returned uh, from, from exile. So God used these these chosen prophets to, to both foretell and to foretell. That's important. Whenever you talk about prophecy, okay, what do we mean by prophecy? What is biblical prophecy? Biblical prophecy is both foretelling and forthtelling. In other words, prophets would predict the future and they would proclaim the truth in the present. And so the prophet's main job was to confront sin and to warn people that if they didn't repent and return to the Lord, that he would judge them. And so they would predict what would happen to their audience if they didn't heed God's warnings. However, at the same time, they didn't just go around confronting people. It wasn't like they just walked around with a big stick whacking people upside the head, and that's all they did. That was the, the, the ministry of uh, you know, whacking people upside the head with a stick. Okay? They also consoled and comforted people mainly by reminding them of God's covenants and God's promises that, that he would forgive them and restore them and bless them in the future, uh, which ultimately would occur through who? Jesus Christ, right? His, not just his first coming, but also his second coming. And, and, and over half of the minor prophets, seven of them, seven out of the twelve, contain direct prophecies that, are, uh, that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ at his first coming and are yet to be fulfilled by Christ at his second coming. And so 
with that having been said, hopefully you grabbed one of these little sheets of paper in the back. If you didn't, when you came in, grab one now, uh, because uh, I'm just uh, wanted to help you kind of see the big picture of of the of the minor prophets and and first of all where they 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 fit in the canon. Okay, so there's what's called the canonical order. Uh, how they how they show up in the canon, how they show up in your copy of God's word, and then there's the chronological order. Okay, so on that front page there, on the front page, we'll just look at the Old Testament. It's interesting how God uh, wrote the Old Testament, how He broke it down. It breaks up very nicely, thirty nine books into three sections. You've got history, you've got poetry, and you've got prophecy. And so you've got the first seventeen books of the Bible are what you could call history. It's the law, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then you've got the history section, Joshua through Esther. And then you have the poetry. You have the poetry section where, of course, that's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. We've looked at a couple of those books, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And then after that, you come to the, to the prophecy section, which is, again, 17. So you've got 17 at the front end, 5 in the middle, 17 at the back end, and that's all prophecy. And then you've got, in the, in the 17 prophetic books, you have them broken down into major prophets and minor prophets. You've got the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you've got the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's a mouthful, right? Hopefully some of you guys got that memorized. But then turn over to the back. Turn over to the back. That's the canonical order. That's the way things show up in Scripture. But what is the chronological order? I thought this would be helpful for you to see this. And so what I've done is I've just put the books in the order uh, that they were written, okay? And and I've written the date there and the audience, who it was actually written to, uh, what empire was reigning at the time. And you see, obviously, the flow there from the Assyrian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so these are clearly in chronological order. And then I put the theme uh, there in the final column with with probably the key verse or passage uh, that, that brings that theme out. And so you can see there how these uh, books, books were written uh, in that particular order. Pre, before the exile, right, was Obadiah, Joel, uh, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. And then, of course, there's no exilic prophets in the minor prophet section, right? Because why? They were Daniel and Ezekiel, right? And that was during, um, those were major prophets, not minor prophets. Uh, And then you've got the ones after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. What I tried to do there with the themes is really just um, state it in a way that just exalts something about God. Uh, Because we know ultimately that the Bible is God's revelation of Himself. Amen? And so I tried to just word those things in just a, maybe a simple, memorable way uh, that uh, what, what, are, what are these, um, what is the theme of each of these, of each of these books, of each of these prophecies. Um, and I won't take time to read through all those, um, but that just kind of gives you something. Maybe you can just fold that in half and stick it in the front of your, or front of Hosea now, and then use it as a bookmark as we go through these prophets uh, over the next uh, uh, three months or so uh, this fall. But I, I, I need to address this issue of minor, okay? What's up with the minor 
and the major stuff, okay? These 12 prophetic books are referred to as minor, not because their message is less important than the five major prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, but because they're shorter. That's the only reason why they're called minor is because they're shorter in length. In fact, the minor prophets contain a combined total of 67 chapters, okay? Compared to Isaiah, right, that has 66. So the minor prophets together have just one more chapter than one of the major prophets. And that's, that's really why it's called that. Now, before the time of Christ, to ensure that none of these uh, books got lost in the shuffle, if you will, because they're so small, uh, that they were grouped together in the Hebrew Bible to make one scroll called simply the Twelve. It was just called the Twelve. Uh, that's why I thought when I saw that picture, hey, there it is, Twelve, the Twelve. That's what this was called. This is what, if you ask uh, even a, a Jewish person today, and you say, hey, t- talk to me about the 12, they'd be like, how do you know about the 12? You know, it'd be like a secret code, like, you know the 12, right? Well, what, what does that mean? The 12. The 12 is talking about the minor prophets. Now, again, we shouldn't think of this as, you know, major prophets, minor prophets, major leagues, minor leagues, right? Baseball. Major leagues. When you make it to the majors, man, you're in the big leagues. And the minor leagues, ah, that's just minor leagues. You're not really that good yet. You're not that important. But the major leagues, right, that is not the thing you should be thinking about. If you want to think about it, maybe, is how about major keys and minor keys on a piano? Major keys and minor keys on a piano, right? The, 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 the major keys are, are, are bigger, right? The white keys, if you want to just say the white keys and the black keys, can we say it that way, just simple that way, right? They're, they're typically bigger, wider, right? The little black keys are, are smaller, right? And, and, and so, but listen, would you have a piano without the minor keys? No, it wouldn't sound very good at all. You need both the majors and the minors and not, you know, the majors aren't more important than the minors. They all work together, right? Uh, they're of equal importance, and so even though these, these, these prophecies may be small, they really pack a powerful, practical punch. You say, in what way? Well, listen, whenever we're confronted by God and His hatred for sin, right, that's practical, right? Our hearts should be softened towards our sin and prompted to heed His warnings and to live obedient lives, that, that should be one practical application as we go through the, the minor prophets, that we should just want to be more obedient. Um, we should hate our sin more because God hates sin. We should be reminded of His holiness, right? At the same time, whenever we're reminded of the promises of God for us in Christ, right, our hearts should be encouraged. Our hearts should be stirred up with hope to forge ahead through life despite all the trials and all the tribulations. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And this is not the end, right? Right? Uh, he came once according to the promises. He fulfilled the promises for his first coming. He will also fulfill his promises for his second coming. And so that should just give us hope. So not only should the minor prophets humble us, we should be humbled. We should also be pumped up and excited by the minor prophets. Uh, so we just walk around, oh, doom and gloom, that's, you know, prophets, boom, whack, you know, no, it's like, okay, yeah, in the midst of that confrontation and all that warning and all that, you re- better repent or else, right, the judgment of God will fall. There's this ray of hope that, guess what? God loves you in spite of your sin, right? And he, there's always hope. 
There's always hope. And so uh, I think that's some application. Furthermore, I would just say this. As we consider the example of these zealous, courageous men who passionately and and uncompromisingly proclaim the truth to both king and and commoner alike, it it should embolden us to become prophets of our own, right? To be prophets ourselves who, who boldly speak truth to people who need to repent, who are making wrong choices, who are headed for disaster, that, that we would communicate the truth to them, right? And not compromise and, and just, just speak the truth in love. And, and at the same time, give them hope, right? Give them hope that in Christ, right, they can be forgiven and they can be made right with God and they could uh, rejoice, Again, Boyce says this. He says, these works are powerful. And I, he, and I think the reason why they're so powerful, he goes on to say this, is because they dramatize the character of God as few other books do. In other words, they, they kind of put on display the attributes of God, like his sovereignty, that God is in control, um, his holiness, God hates sin. His love, his, the fact that he relentlessly pursues us. His love is faithful. We're going to look at that tonight with Hosea, right? It, it, the, these books reveal his wrath. Uh, the book of Nahum. Um, if you ever thought about where, where do I go in Scripture to learn more about the wrath of God, what, what Romans 1 is to the New Testament, Nahum chapter 1 is to the Old Testament. If you want a description of the wrath of God, it's in Nahum chapter 1. Um, how about the justice of God, that God is fair, uh, that he follows through, he does what he says, he's faithful. How about God's grace, God's mercy? All of these things are put on display, uh, according to, to James Montgomery Boyce, in, in, in ways uh, unlike anywhere else in Scripture uh, here in, in the Minor Prophets. And so tonight, we are going to see God's love his faithful love put on display through the book of Hosea. Hosea is the first book. And by the way, we're not going to go in, in, in chronological order as we study these. Okay, so we're not starting with Obadiah. We're going to start with the canonical order and start with Hosea. And that's the order we're going to follow here. I didn't want to confuse you too much, right? And flip you back and forth all over the place over the next uh, three or four months. But we're just going to start with Hosea. And, and, and again, um, we, we recently studied Hosea. I'm looking out and I, I look at most of the faces in here and, and, and you remember the story of Hosea well, but what are we to do? Just say, oh, I already did it, let's move on. No, we've got to talk about Hosea, okay? How could you not start off, right, the minor prophets walking through this golden archway that we know as the book of Hosea? I, I said this before, so some of this is going to sound familiar, I'm sure, to some of you, um, but hopefully we can all be stirred up by way of reminder tonight as we just reconsider um, the book of Hosea. What, what is the major point of Hosea? God's faithful love. I think the book of Hosea is the greatest love story of all time. In fact, after teaching through it a couple years ago, I think it is the greatest story in the Bible. Why? Because it is the story of the Bible. What's probably the most well-known story in the Bible? New Testament. The story of the prodigal son, right? 
I would think that would be maybe the most popular story, most well-known story, and most beloved story in the Bible is the prodigal son, Luke 15, which is the story most Christians think of as being a microcosm uh, of the story of the Bible, right? Wayward sinners uh, who come to their senses, they repent of their sin, uh, they'll find their loving Heavenly Father waiting to graciously forgive them and lavishly restore them, right? That's the story of the prodigal son, that's the story of the Bible. Um, well, this is also the story of Hosea, which you could call the story of not the prodigal son, but the prostitute wife. The story of the prostitute wife. I don't know if you ever thought about that, right? That's my favorite story, the story of the prostitute wife, right? People are like, kind of look at you strange, like, what's your problem? Um, I would say this, what the story of the prodigal son is to the New Testament, the story of the prostitute wife is to the Old Testament. And in the same way the prodigal son foolishly wandered away from his father's love and, and stumbled into a life of sin, the prostitute wife named Gomer, right, foolishly wandered away from her husband's love and stumbled into a life of sin. But what sets the story of, of the prostitute wife apart from the story of the prodigal son and makes it, in my opinion, even more glorious is that unlike the father who stayed at home and waited for his son to come back, the husband in Hosea, right, went out looking for his wife and found her not in a pigsty, but on an auction block being sold as a sex slave to the highest bidder. And what did he do? He reached into his pocket and he bought her and carried her back home and nursed her back to health. That's radical love. And in the same way, Scripture likens us all to prodigal sons. Everybody okay with that? Everybody okay with that we're a prodigals? Everybody okay with that? That's what the Bible says. That's the prodigal son is a picture of all of us, right? How about this? You okay with being a prostitute wife? Because the Bible says that that's what we are too. And we're not only prodigals, we're prostitutes. And if you're familiar with the Scriptures, it's you know that this is a theme, uh, this spiritual prostitution or harlotry or adultery is weaved throughout the Old Testament and, and climaxes in the New Testament in James chapter 4, verse 4, when James says, writing to believers, you, what? Adulteresses. You adulteresses. Um, now, having said all that, <laughs> I know that's shocking, Right? Um, and, and unsettling um, because it's rarely ever addressed that way in the church. Um, I've had people come to me and, and say, man, I, I don't like to think of myself as a, as, a, as a prostitute. And I'm like, well, neither do I. But that's what God says we are, right? And, and yes, granted, by God's grace, in Christ, we are no longer gomers, amen? That we're robed in the righteousness of Christ, and I don't think we should walk around thinking, oh, man, I'm a harlot. I'm an adulteress. I'm, you know, as if, you know, as if that's our present state, okay? But the point is, we all have that heart, right, to cheat on God and to go after other gods and other lovers and other things and loving the world rather than loving Christ. Where does all, where does all this start? I think it all starts understanding this whole idea of spiritual adultery uh, back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, 24, uh, what does it say? That, that the man shall leave his father and mother 
and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so God established the institution of marriage as this covenant relationship between a man and a woman who were to be faithful to one another for their entire lives. And I think that God created the the marriage relationship to serve as as a beautiful picture of the unconditional, sacrificial, everlasting love relationship that he would share with his covenant people. The kind of relationship that he would have with you and he would have with me. And and in the Old Testament, God is pictured as the husband of his covenant people, Israel, right? In the New Testament, Christ is pictured as the husband of his covenant people, the church. Back in the Old Testament, after delivering the people of Israel from bondage to Egypt, God established this, this covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, right? He likened it to a marriage which they were both to be faithful to as long as they lived. And God promised to bless his bride, Israel, as long as they only worshipped him and and only obeyed his commandments when they entered the promised land. But if they disobeyed and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites and played the, what what is he always talking about? Playing the harlot, right? He promised to punish them and remove them from the land. Well, we know how that story went, right? Israel disobeyed God. They went after other gods, which in God's eyes was tantamount to what? Adultery. Adultery. And we don't have time to to read all the verses that that would make this point all throughout the Old Testament. But but just saying this, that, that in response to their spiritual adultery, God sent prophets to confront his people, and they minced no words in rebuking them for their unfaithfulness, to their marriage vows to God. He called them, they called them what they were, your your harlots, your whores, your prostitutes. And so the the imagery of of, of Israel as God's unfaithful wife was was graphically depicted through the major prophets. Um, Isaiah, for example, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And so again, just, just stop for a second and remember this, okay? Just some practical application here that we need to remember that whenever we sin, okay, we not only break God's law, but we break God's heart. Sometimes all we think about, oh, I I broke God's law. I broke the law. I disobeyed him. Well, you also broke his heart, right? Why? Because there's a relationship going on there. Sin grieves the heart of God. And so God called all the prophets to, to to express to his people how much their sin hurt him, and how heartbroken he was over their spiritual adultery. But then he called one prophet to not merely express God's hurt and heartbreak, but to actually experience it himself. And, and there's some pretty wild things that God called prophets to do. Isaiah had to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. Um, Jeremiah had to wear a yoke and bury his underwear under a pile of rocks. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for over a year and cook his food over human excrement. Now, that's some weird stuff, right? Um, But no prophet, I don't think, received a a stranger more difficult task than Hosea because God called him to marry an unfaithful woman. So he would feel the same pain and grief and, and shame and disgrace that God felt as a result of Israel's adultery against him. I don't know what your worst nightmare is as a married person, but I would guess 
that is to have your spouse cheat on you. And those of you who have experienced that, you're able to feel the slightest tinge of, of the grief and the pain and heartache that we cause God whenever we sin. It's, it's like we're cheating on him. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's never happened. But if it does happen, man, my spouse cheats on me, they're gone. I'm out of here. I'm going to divorce them. And that's exactly why the story of Hosea is so profound. It's so powerful because even though Hosea had every right to divorce his wayward wife, God commanded him to relentlessly pursue her in love even though she kept running around on him. And so consequently, to some, Hosea looked like an absolute idiot. I mean, it made no sense to them why he would continue to, to love his unfaithful wife who caused him so much pain and grief. I mean, you're crazy, man. You can Im- imagine the people talking to him. You're crazy. Why waste your time and energy trying and money trying to win back that tramp, man? Just dump her. But God wanted Hosea's marriage to be an unforgettable object lesson of his faithful love for his unfaithful people. I love Donald Gray, Donald Gray Barnhouse and what he said about the sanity of true love. In other words, true love doesn't make any sense. Who can explain the sanity of true love? Love is of God and it is infinite. Love is sovereign. Love is apart from reason. Love is not according to logic. Love is according to love. This is this is. Thus it was with Hosea, for he was playing the part that God has played with you all your life. And with me, the pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe. We leave God and run from his will because, he, because we want so much to have our own way. We look back thinking we have outdistanced him, sure that we have succeeded in escaping from him. But when we turn quickly, we find that he is there pleading with the eyes of love and showing himself once more to be the tender and faithful one loving to the end. He will always say, my child, my name and nature are love, and I must act according to that which I am. So it is that I have pursued you to tell you that when you are tired of your running and wandering, I will be there to draw you to myself once more. When we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. But everything in the word and in experience shows us that he is. He will give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. And then he'll give to man the brains to make an axe from the iron to cut down a tree and fashion it into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. And when man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him and bring him to that cross. He will stretch out his hands upon it and allow him man to nail him to that cross and in so doing will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come unto him and know the joy of sins removed and forgiven to know the assurance of pardon and eternal life and to enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever this is even our God and there is none like unto him. And so nowhere is this incomparable, incomprehensible love of God portrayed more profoundly in the Bible than here in the book of Hosea. And so God devoted an entire book in his word to show us what he thinks of and how he responds to spiritual adultery. 
And the reason why Hosea, I think, got the, got the nod, if you will, uh, he was the one that got put in the game uh, at this particular time in Israel's history because the, the adultery of Israel had reached a climax during the days of Hosea, and so did the jealousy of God. And the nation was sharing their love for God with Baal, and, and God could no longer look on while his people had affair after affair after affair with other gods and other nations. And so God raised up Hosea to expose Israel's sin and exhort them to repent and, and to avoid his impending judgment. And in the first verse, it says here, The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, and the son of Joash, king of Israel. Basically, what he's saying is that, that Hosea is saying that I preached God's word to the northern kingdom of Israel. During, during the 45 years leading up to their destruction and deportation to Assyria, he administered through the reigns of four kings of Judah, through the tragic reigns of seven kings of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam II. Um, Jeroboam II was the greatest of all the kings of Israel, and during his reign, uh, Israel's original borders were restored and the nation enjoyed political peace and prosperity. However, this, this easy, soft, cushy environment created a, a fertile breeding ground for compromise and sin. Does that sound familiar? USA? We, we've had it good, right? Greatest nation in the world, right? We've had it so easy and everything's comfortable and soft. And, and what does it do? It creates this fertile breeding ground for compromise and sin. And so the nation of, of Israel was just rife with idolatry and immorality. And, and, and after the death of Jeroboam, Israel rapidly declined into the state of political anarchy. Uh, almost all the remaining kings were assassinated through one coup after another. And then notice verse 2, when the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblin. Can you imagine Hosea, right? Going into his marriage, knowing that his wife would forsake her wedding vows and be unfaithful to him. I can imagine that, right? On your wedding day, that's the last thing you're thinking about, right? You're thinking until death do you part, faithful, forsaking all others, right? Hosea is standing there at the altar knowing this chick's going to burn me. She's going to go her own way. She's going to run off. She's going to run around on me. And have children of unfaithfulness, which may mean that her children would be the result of, his, of her unfaithfulness. In other words, they would be illegitimate kids conceived through her adulterous affairs, um, or it may be that, that Hosea was the biological father of all three of his children, or just maybe the first two or just the first one. Uh, it really doesn't matter. What matters is the names of these kids. It doesn't matter who, whose they are, but what they're named. Notice verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, 
the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the vow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruamai, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I will ever forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When, they, when she had weaned Lo-Ruamai, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So he has two sons, right, um, and, and a daughter, and God told him what to name them, and, and these names, these prophetic names gave them, that, that, that God gave them testified to the deteriorating relationship between God and Israel. This was just going downhill from bad to worse. And it was really foreshadowing the coming judgment. Um, Again, Jezreel, God will scatter, talking about Israel's destruction by Assyria. Lo-ruamai means unpitied or unloved. It signified Israel's captivity in Assyria. Uh, It's almost like they were orphaned. Uh, if you will. And by the way, they never came back from that captivity. That's, that's why you hear about the 10 lost tribes of Israel, because you never hear about them coming back from exile. All you hear about is, is, is Judah, right? Uh, and, and Benjamin coming back from exile from Babylon. Um, don't go off and study the 10 lost tribes of Israel, because there's nothing in the Bible about them, okay? And it's all speculation, okay? Don't waste your time. But that's the point. So lo me, not my people, signify that God would revoke his covenant promises. I'm going to disown you. You're not my people. The good news is this would not be the end of Israel, right? Because even though God would punish them, he would never, what? Abandon them. And that's what he goes on to talk about in verse 10 all the way to chapter 2, verse 1 right after this somber prophecy that Israel was going to be severely judged by God, there's this joyous prophecy that he's going to restore Israel in the future. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. They will be appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruamai. In other words, God was going to turn all this around, right? And the fact that God changed the names of Hosea's kids back to something else, right? Takes the prefixes off their name, right? Was a providing a way of hope in the midst of a, of a gloomy forecast of judgment to come. And chapter 2 follows the pattern of chapter 1 in that, that half the chapter highlights Uh, Israel's condemnation, um, and the other half highlights Israel's restoration. And this was very typical. I mean, you could pretty much summarize every one of the prophets of Scripture from uh, Isaiah all the way to Malachi. That's basically their message. There was a message of condemnation, and there was a message of consolation. And those things, it was like two sides of a coin. They were both going on uh, in every prophecy. Israel's restoration, I think, is, is, um, is, is beautifully and powerfully depicted in chapter 3 when Hosea willingly endures the shame and, 
and, and gladly bears the cost of buying his wayward wife back at a public slave auction. Really, this is the heart. Chapter 3 is the heart of the book of Hosea, and I would also say is the heart of the Bible. Right there, you see, I don't know how yours looks like on your page, but it looks like a little center section. I mean, this is the heart of the book of Hosea. This is the heart of the Bible. Notice what he says. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you, for the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So we know that David was dead and gone at this point, so who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. And he's ultimately talking about not Jesus Christ's first coming, but his what? Second coming when they will mourn the one they have pierced. That's coming up in one of the minor prophets, that verse. So again, this is a powerful picture here of God redeeming us from the slave market of sin through the price of his own son on the cross. This is the whole idea of, if you remember when I taught through this, the title of the, of the series was what? Remember? Relentless Redeemer, right? Relentless Redeemer. That God is relentlessly pursuing us and he's redeeming us, he's purchasing, he's, he's buying us back out of the slave market of sin through the price of his son, Jesus Christ. Interesting, that 15 shekels of silver and a home and a half of barley, the going rate for a slave in those days was 30 pieces of silver. So what that's indicating is that Gomer's only worth half of the price of a normal slave. In other words, she was in sad shape. I mean, she had been used and abused by her lovers, uh, the last of which offered her up for sale to the highest bidder. And so she was an absolute wreck. I came across this description by a, a, a college professor uh, of what was going on here when in that marketplace. When, when Hosea bought Gomer back. And again, it's speculation, but I think it's powerful and profound to think about. This is what he said. We don't know how ex- why exactly her price was so low, but it clearly means that she was not looked upon as having much value among her would-be buyers. Maybe her physical appearance was repulsive. Her clothes were probably filled with the stench of rotting life. Her hair perhaps was unkept and weathered. Her body may have been unfit, diseased, scarred, or just plain unable to fulfill the physical duties of a domestic slave or unable to perform the sexual fantasies of the hungry men looking on with blank stares and hollow souls. And so one by one, the other more beautiful, more physically appealing women were bought with a high price. The shame of being passed over as a worthless product was probably nothing new to Gomer. At this point, she couldn't remember what it felt like to be valuable in someone's eyes. But then she heard a familiar voice. I'll take her. No, not that one. The other one, the one in the back. Gomer heard the onlooking crowd snicker and laugh, and Hosea was even more insistent. No, not that one. The one behind her. Yes, the one with the muddy dress. 
The crowd laughed even harder, shaking their heads in disbelief. Gomer then looked out past her crusty, stench-filled hair and saw a face from the distant past. It was her husband, Hosea. The man who many men ago found her on the streets and married her. The man who endured six or seven affairs. She had lost track by then. The man who kept on pursuing her was once again seeking to buy her back. Me, she wondered. Why in the world would he want anything to do with me? Hosea was more adamant than before. Yes, yes, I know who it is. I want her. I'll pay any price for her. I love her and I want to be with her because I delight in her. The whole crowd doubled over in laughter. One villager shoved a finger in Hosea's chest and blurted out, that's the woman who has slept with half the guys in this village. She's made a mockery of you. She shamed you beyond what any guy could endure. She didn't even want to be with you then. And look at her now. What a despicable wreck. But Hosea fought his way through the crowd and cried out, I don't care what she looks like. I don't care what she's done. I don't care what she may end up doing. Even if she never learns to love me or respect me, I love her and I will never stop loving her. I've forgiven her and I will continue to forgive her because that's my wife and she is the most beautiful person in my eyes. I delight in her, I cherish her, and I'll pay any price. So get out of my way and give me my wife. And then this professor goes on and says, Hosea's scandalous, shameless, unconditional, never-ending, one-way love for his very unlovable wife is a snapshot, a mini-picture of God's grace towards us. Jesus demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still, how about whores? Christ eagerly climbed up on the cross to make us his own. We are Gomer. Did Hosea have every right to divorce Gomer? Absolutely. It would have been completely just for him to actually have her what? Stoned to death. And no one would have blamed him if he had sought revenge, but what? Grace is greater than the law. It's greater than the power of retaliation. It's greater than our sin, right? And so he gently put Gomer's clothes back on and tenderly picked her up in his strong, loving arms and carried her home. Love that. And I think the lesson in that is that God loves us so much. We're talking about God's faithful love, right? He loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to lead us to repent and to restore our broken relationship with him. Even though it may appear harsh, right? God in his love sometimes hurts us to heal us, right? He, he exercises tough love, and that's essentially what he was talking about, saying, hey, you're going to stay with me. You're not going anywhere. This is, this is total lockdown, right? Because I know if you leave this house, right, I know what you're going to be tempted to do, and so I'm not letting you out of my sight. But he was exercising what? Tough love. And then, of course, the prophecy there in verses 4 and 5 which would ultimately be Israel's restoration at the second coming of Christ during the millennial kingdom, right? When the covenant promises that God made to both Abraham and David would finally be fulfilled. And then you go through chapter 4 all the way through chapter 13. 
again, kind of speeding up the pace here because we're running out of time, okay? It's all about how Israel was guilty of violating her covenant with God and as a result would experience the covenant cursings for worshiping foreign gods and, and forming alliances with foreign nations. And, and this is what's so ironic about this is that God was, 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 would use the nations that she trusted to protect her, right? Part of the harlotry was like trusting in Egypt, trusting in other, even Assyria, right? Which backfired big time, right? Because Assyria, you know, came in and, and, and destroyed them. The whole point is that God used the very nations that they were trusting to protect them to punish them. And so Hosea preaches a series of sermons, like every chapter is, is basically another sermon in, in a series warning Israel of the judgment to come if she didn't repent of her sin and return to the Lord. And, and, and over and over and over again, he says, listen, God sees, God knows, and, and God is not mocked, right? You'll reap what you sow. And there were moments, right, when it seemed like they were repentant. We talked about this, chapter 6, for example. Hey, let's come and return to the Lord. Let's get right with God. But based on their patterns after that, right, that, that you know, like Gomer, right, we, we shed many a tear, we assure God that we're never going to do that again, right? How many of you had those conversations with the Lord, right? Weeping, saying, Lord, forgive me, I'll never do that again, right? And then what are we doing the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next month, right? We're right back at it again. Just like the nation of Israel, time and time again. So after all these chapters of of preaching about Israel's sin and how God was going to punish them for it, Hosea highlights in the end, chapter 14, God's undying love for his faithless faithless people. That that ultimately, like, that that would be what would prevail. Notice verses 1 through 4. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. So what is he saying? You need to confess your sin and and, and admit what you've done wrong. And I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. And so he's basically saying, listen, my love will prevail. You repent, you confess your sin, you repent of it, right? And God will forgive you. His love will restore you. And then I love the way it ends. Notice verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. I mean, basically what he's saying is, hey, listen up. Heed the lessons of the book of Hosea. Wise people listen to God's word and obey what it says. If you listen and obey, you'll enjoy the blessing of God. But if you fail to listen and obey, right, you'll have to endure the consequences of your sin. 
And as we know, Israel foolishly failed to listen to Hosea, and they stumbled in sin, and they ended up where? Going out of existence, right? They, they ended up in Assyria where they went out of existence, right? We don't have any, re- any record of them returning to the land of Israel. Now, that doesn't have to happen to you, right? That's the point. Okay, how does this... So, so what? So what, Gomer and Hosea? Well, guess what? If you apply the message of this book to your life, you can avoid stumbling into sin, falling away from God, and you can stay walking in righteousness and experiencing God's blessing. That's what he's saying in verse 9. Let me just quickly suggest some, some practical ways that you can apply the message of Hosea, okay? Number one, if you're not a Christian here tonight, get saved. That's the first application, right? That's where it starts. If you're not a Christian, get saved. Jesus called those who were unwilling to believe in him an evil, sinful, adulterous generation. And so consequently, unbelievers deserve to be punished for their sinful rebellion against God. But God demonstrated his love towards sinful people by sending Jesus to die, even when we were rebelling against him, right? And it's through the blood of Christ on the cross that we can be redeemed, bought back from our futile way of life. So you don't have to keep wandering through the streets of this world like a spiritual prostitute looking for someone or something to satisfy you. That's really a... a, a, profound picture of of a lost person. You're just out on the street every night looking for someone or something to satisfy you. And God offers to buy you out of that lifestyle, out of that slave market of sin with the price of his son's blood if you'll repent of your sin and you'll commit your life to follow him as your Lord and Savior. So great application, right? If you're not a Christian, get saved. How about if you are a Christian? You know what the application is? Stay devoted to Christ. Stay devoted to Christ. Um, Again, Paul likens believers to the bride of Christ. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We're now married to Christ, and we have a responsibility to remain faithful to Him. And Satan loves to use the things of this world to deceive us and distract us and draw us away from our devotion to Christ. Whenever we seek to find pleasure in the things of this world, it's as if we're having an affair with the world. We're sleeping with the enemy. We're cheating on Christ. That's James 4, 4. You adulteresses, right? And while we may have never committed physical adultery, actual adultery, right? All of us are guilty of committing spiritual adultery. Every time we sin, that could be likened to spiritual adultery, right? And we just need to remember, as it says in James 4.4, God is incredibly what? Jealous. And rightfully so given who he is, right? And what we are and what he's done for us. God takes his relationship with us personally. And it causes him unimaginable pain and heartache when we we share our devotion with anyone or anything besides him. And so let me just remind you that even if you have been unfaithful to the Lord, 
and you may have wandered away from him. You may be wandering right now. Listen, if you humbly confess and repent of your adultery, your spiritual adultery, you can have the confidence that he will have mercy upon you and he will be gracious to you and he will reaffirm his love for you. How cool is that? So if you're not saved, get saved. If you're a Christian, stay devoted to Christ. And let me just say this lastly. If you're married, okay, anybody here married? Kids are knocking on their parents. Yeah, you, that's you guys now. If you're married, stay married. If you're married, stay married. Why? Because Christ continues to love us even when we're unfaithful to him and he calls us to love our spouse like he loves us. And I think whenever we're in a situation where there's even been unfaithfulness in a marriage, I think by God's grace, we should seek to follow the example of Hosea, right? Which is ultimately the example of who? God. And we're confident that if if God could provide Hosea the grace, right, to sustain him through the pain, through the heartbreak of adultery, then guess what? He could provide you with the grace to endure it as well. Amen. And I can't think of a more beautiful, powerful picture of the gospel, right, than a husband or wife relentlessly pursuing reconciliation even after one's, one of them has committed adultery. What a powerful picture of the gospel. And I know there may be someone sitting right here tonight that you are, I'm not just, this is not hypothetical, this is reality for you. And um, if I could recommend a little resource we have in our resource center, it's called How to Save Your Marriage Alone by Dr. Ed Wheat. How to Save Your Marriage Alone. Great little resource. And it basically just tells the story of Hosea to encourage a husband or a wife who's, who's really wanting to be reconciled to their spouse and yet their spouse is just running all over the place and doesn't want anything to do with them, right? What are you supposed to do? Well, there's a way that you can save your marriage all by yourself, alone. Obviously with the help of God, but it's really focusing on what your responsibility. Jose's example is ultimately the example of God who never abandons us even when we are unfaithful to him. That's why Jeremiah said, or quoted God, and and this is what God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that will never end, a love that will never die, a love that will never go away, right? God's love is forever. He is forever faithful. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this reminder, even though we've been through this book before, um, over 14 weeks or so. It's just good to kind of get it in just one little mouthful, one little mindful. I pray that you would uh, just overwhelm us tonight with your faithful love. Thank you for being such a good and faithful God, and even in spite of our unfaithfulness, Lord, in every one of us, in this room has been unfaithful to you at one time or another, if not multiple times, Lord. Every time we sin, we're, we're cheating on you. And, and Lord, we, 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 we're so sorry and we seek your forgiveness. And we thank you that when we 
um, come to you and confess sin. We, we, we're so grateful to know that you forgive us and you restore us and you reaffirm your love for us and you'll never send us away. And we're so grateful for that. And so, Lord, help us to, 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 to demonstrate that same kind of love to others, that we would show this faithful love to our spouses, we would show this faithful love to, to our children, our brothers and sisters, Lord, this forgiving, faithful love, uh, and even to unbelievers, Lord, that we interact with in our neighborhoods and at work and at school, uh, who may do hurtful things, Lord, that we would have the joy uh, of sharing with them your great love and how you can rescue them from their life of sin and, um, and, and, and have them um, be joined with you in this intimate relationship uh, called being a Christian. And so, Lord, thank you for tonight. I pray that you bless this series as we continue it over these next few months. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.